If I were to ask you to think of your favorite book or movie, I would have a bunch of different uh, answers, I'm sure. Whether it was drama or action, though, likely, if I asked you, well, if I asked you why you like those movies, obviously there'd be a bunch of different answers as well. But if we dug a little deeper, I, I imagine there would be one um, <clears throat> idea or concept that would be central, that in whatever this movie is that has captured our hearts or our imagination, that there is a compelling conflict at the core of it. Whether it's just the amazing um, chase scenes or battle scenes, or it's the secret intrigues of, um, of spy-type stuff, or even uh, the relational tension and conflict in a drama or romance, or internal psychological tension, conflict makes the story. I mean, think about some of the movies you th- that people are looking forward to this summer. I went on a site that said, you know, 2011 summer blockbusters, and the list was long. So I don't know if people are really looking forward to these or not, but, so, you know, some people think they are. Um, so, you know, you see Thor up there. And if you're looking, okay, someone's looking forward to Thor. Um, <laughs> but if it said, you know, if it was, I don't know, gardening tips from Thor, n- not real compelling, Right. Not a lot of conflict there, nothing we're necessarily drawn to. Optimus Prime's favorite recipes, something people aren't going to show up for at the theaters. Unless there's some type of explosion involved, then it might work. Now, so, so we like conflict of, in some way, shape, or form in the stories that draw us in. Now, think about a lot of the biblical virtues that we're called to. Think of the fruit of the Spirit, where it's love, joy, peace, patience, those those virtues there, uh, we're told to, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And we get this decided impression that God wants us to be kind, that God wants us to be peacemakers, and then we wonder, well, how does this fit with all the conflict stuff? To a certain degree, this, this is, seems to be a biblical rule, that it should be our default position that we are people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, and we are peacemakers. Certainly, that's what God calls us to but it seems like things don't always fit the way, they, we, the way that we think they should. Uh, so we come today with most of us here calling ourselves Christians, which is, is a term for little Christs, that we are like him or we're followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus, which means we're his apprentices. We are seeking to become like him. And when we do that, we really get into some tension here. We say, hey, okay, I'm supposed to have the fruit of the Spirit. I'm supposed to be kind, peace, patience. But Jesus is always getting into trouble. Have you noticed that when you read the Gospels? And if we are following him, if we are seeking to be with him, we have to understand that even though we are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, even though we are seeking to be peacemakers, there are going to be times when conflict is inevitable. This morning, we are doing a little time travel, so to speak. We are Two, uh, in two weeks, Easter week begins with Palm Sunday, and then Easter is three weeks away. And so, as we are looking at the passage we're looking at today is the day after Palm Sunday, if that makes sense. And it's going to be a great picture um, where we will see an intense environment of conflict, and that's going to really set the scene and set the tone for what Easter week is all about in the, in, that we will celebrate starting on Palm Sunday. So we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke in our series, Reach for Jesus. So grab your Bibles and turn to Luke. Um, if you do not have a Bible with you today, raise your hands. The ushers will be happy to bring some forward to you. Um, and then just, that's a loaner, leave it on your seat. But if you do not have a Bible, be sure to go to the Information Center after service, and they'll be happy to give you one. We would love for you to read that and be in God's Word. So, uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verse 45. 
Luke 19.45, if you don't know where Luke is, it's in the New Testament, about three quarters of the way through your Bible, and then the third book, Matthew, Mark, then Luke. Um, And as we move through this conflict, we need to just keep some very important things in mind. That Jesus' approach to the cross is unique. It is unrepeatable. Obviously, we cannot do what he's done. So we can't follow him in this conflict. We don't want to do exactly what Jesus does because it's so unique to his context. But we're going to see that there are some maybe corresponding conflicts that we need to look at, most often within our own lives, um, that we need to deal with and we need to engage with if we're going to reach for Jesus. So today we're learning how to reach for Jesus through conflict. And our central thought, the really thing I want you to grasp and grapple with this morning, is that when we embrace Jesus through conflict, we can experience God's blessing, and also we experience the fact that he gives us great responsibility. Um, The context of this, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday. The people are acclaiming him as king, but the leaders won't. And Jesus knows what's ahead. And so um, he proclaims that Jerusalem will be judged. And it's not an angry pronouncement. It's, it, he weeps. If you read the verses before what we're going at today, he's, he is weeping because he loves his people, but it doesn't change the reality that they have missed the opportunity to embrace him. And so that's the context that we are looking, and now we're stepping into this, and we want to see how reaching Jesus through conflict can lead us to God's blessing. And round one, since we're in the con- uh, conflict mode here, is the temple conflict. Jesus starts it all by throwing... Um, throwing these guys who were selling stuff out of the temple. Verses 45 to 46, chapter 19. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So what's going on here? The the people, the financial people in the temple had had really be, end up becoming essential to the temple process in this time because people were coming from all over. They needed to buy animals. They had to exchange their Roman and Greek money for the temple tax. So in and of itself, they were offering a service at the temple. But when Jesus throws these guys out, something significant happens here. Just by this act, what he does is, he, is when he throws them out, people can't buy animals. And if you can't buy animals, you can't sacrifice. And so for just a short time, there is this symbolic judgment on the temple process here. It's a symbolic gesture of judgment against the temple. And some people would consider this blasphemy, and it might be the tripwire for the, for the crucifixion event. <clears throat> but as Jesus communicates, the deeper issue here is that the temple is not functioning the way God intended. Even if it was doing all the sacrifices the right way, it's supposed to be a place of worship. It's supposed to be a place of revelation. It, it, it told us who God was because that's where he lived And it was a place that ultimately, and it's interesting because Luke speaks about the nations so much, but he doesn't hear. But in other other gospels, you see that it's a place for all nations to gather and to worship God. That's what was written from Isaiah, that this is supposed to be a place where the nations stream to worship. When he says it is written, that's what Isaiah was talking about. But it also says it was written that you've made it a den of robbers. So Isaiah has this ideal picture of the temple, but in Jeremiah is where the den of robbers language is from. And in the den of robbers, um, that's what God calls the temple right before they get annihilated and deported to Babylon. And he's saying, that's what you guys have become again. 
that this temple should be, and it could be a beautiful place for all to come and worship because it reveals God, yet it has become a place that's reminiscent of Israel's lowest point in their history, the exile. And it's going to happen again in about 40 years or so from this point in time when the Romans come in and do it. So he pronounces this judgment. But after that, um, he shows in some ways, not in terms of sacrifice, but how the temple is supposed to work. He goes on teaching in the first part of verse 47 and the first part of chapter 20, verse 1. Every day he was teaching at the temple. And then uh, one day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel. And so those are the things Jesus was doing because it's supposed to be a place where God is revealed. So Jesus teaches there regularly, proclaiming the gospel, revealing God. Now, if we remember very, at the very beginning of Luke where Jesus says, hey, this is what my ministry is about, it was releasing the captives and, and caring for the poor and all of the gospel um, included that kind of stuff, good news for the poor. And so Luke is reminding us that Jesus all throughout, and we'll see this as we go back to more parts of Luke, that Jesus is all about bringing people in from the margins and bringing them into the mainstream of, of being God's people. He brings in the lepers. He brings in the women who were marginalized at that time. He brings in tax collectors. He brings in all, the poor. And Jesus is saying, hey, you are all part of what God is doing. And that's what the temple was supposed to do as well, which it had failed to do at that point. Now, before we move from the storyline, I want to before we move forward in the storyline, I want to, to think about kind of how this applies to us. Um, and, and it's hard to get our, our mind around what this meant because for us, we just, it, it, we don't have anything so central in our spiritual life that it would be as devastating for Jesus to do what he did here. But, but we want to dwell on the fact that the, the conflict is over. The temple did not fulfill the purpose that God gave it. And so what I want to do is I want you to ask yourself a question. And I want you to ask yourself, am I fulfilling my God-given purpose? See, in the fog of conflict, we can forget the important questions. And this is a big one. Am I fulfilling the purpose for which God created me? And that's, that's something to think about. And as we think about that, there's going to be some internal conflict. Now, we need to be careful here. This is not a direct correlation. It's not the idea of if I'm not fulfilling my purpose at this point, then I'm in, Jesus is going to come throw me out or anything like that. Um, that's an unrepeatable f- event from 2,000 years ago. So the connection isn't direct, but I don't think it's an, ever a bad idea for us to say, am I fulfilling God's purpose in my life right now? As the temple was not. You know, our theme for our Easter promotion is Easter changes everything. And one of the things that it changes is that there becomes no need for the temple because there's no more need for sacrifice because of what Jesus did. And also that Jesus is, he's the place of God. He is himself God. But it's not just Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 3, we find out that we are his temple. And there's several other allusions to that throughout the scriptures. And so I think it appropriate to ask ourselves, in a time where Jesus has said the ancient temple wasn't fulfilling its purpose, we need to ask if we're fulfilling ours. So um, I encourage you sometime this week to take some time to reflect. Uh, self-reflection is important. Psalm, uh, King David says it best, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. says, uh, search me, O God. Can you throw that up there? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And then inviting God, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Saying, God, look at me, see what's going on inside so that I can um, be where you want me to be. And Lent is the, the kind 
is, is the season for that kind of reflection as we prepare to celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord. And there's a bunch of different ways to reflect and a bunch of different things to think about, but a simple way to remember, hey, God, uh, help me process where I stand in terms of some very basic points would be thinking about the great commandment and the great commission. Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 39. Jesus said, um, love, the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So those are things. Am I loving God? Am I loving my neighbor that we can use to reflect of? Am I living out my purpose? The next verse is the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Am I living out God's mission? It's something to ask ourselves. So ask yourself, am I loving God with all that I am? Am I loving my neighbor? And, and maybe even your real neighbor, that guy you don't like very much who lives next door. Am I helping others around the world come to love God and love their neighbor as well? What does it look like practically to love God, to love your neighbor, to reach the world? Would someone be able to see an objective observer from your actions saying, oh, that's what they're committed to? That's who they love, and that's why they do the things they do. It's because they love God, they love their neighbors, and they love the world. So these are the questions we need to grapple with. These are the questions we need to ponder. And this is, um, when you do this, and you sit down with you, yourself, and, and God, and are thinking this through, of how, where do I stand on these, it can really lead to some significant internal conflict. Introspection is not at all conflict-free. And we don't want it to be just personal introspection. We want to invite God in on the process to search us. And this is for all of us who call ourselves Christians. We say we're Christ followers, um, and these are the things that he has called us to. These are the things he's about, and so they are the things we are to step into as well. But it's also for anyone, in your, wherever you are in your journey with God. It could be that you're here, you're not a believer, and you're wondering, what does God want from me? This is what he wants from you. He wants you to, he wants you to love him with everything you have and to enjoy him in that. And then he wants to use you to change the world. It may not be the global world, but he wants you to change your world and the relationships around you. And he wants to help you. He wants you to be part of what he's doing around the world as well, to making positive changes. That's what Easter is all about. We could stay on that for a long time. And in fact, if a lot of you turned out, t- tuned out to reflect on those questions for the rest of the time, it would still be a productive morning. Now, if you tune out thinking about how the Mariners are going to run away with the West this year or NCAA title game, not as productive, um, but, um, but those are definitely questions worth thinking about. So let's keep going. Because you'd think it'd be all, I'll be settled at this point, right? Jesus cleansed the temple. I'm serious about my purpose. Should be easy, right? We're all done. Um, well, it's never that easy. The great stories never are. And Jesus' opponents aren't going down easy. So Jesus, you know, he delivered the first blow, cleansing the temple, but now they're going to punch back, and they're going to hit back, and, they're, and, and so that leads us to our next section, is round two, is the verbal conflict. Jesus cleansed the temple, and then we talked about how he was teaching, but let's look at um, the rest of those verses. Every day he was teaching at the temple, verse 47, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So Jesus struck at the heart of temple worship. These guys aren't going to take it lying down. 
but they can't just take Jesus out. He's too popular at this point. And so their plan is to take him down a few pegs. They're going to try to shame him. Now, this doesn't make sense to us because it seems like the more shameful you act in our culture, the more followers you get on Twitter. You know, it's not, it's, shame isn't what it used to be. And so it, the way shame would work then is if he was shamed, he would shrink back. He would, he would in, in some ways, go into hiding. Um, but that doesn't work for us. So what they want to do, though, is they want to sway public opinion and they want to retain their authority. That's what this is all about, as Stephen mentioned earlier. That, and over the next couple chapters of Luke, the issue is authority. Who does this Jesus think he is? These leaders want to reveal him to be a fraud. They want to embarrass him into hiding. Um, or, and eventually, since they can't do that, they'll try and take him out altogether. So what do they do? Verses 20, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and, teachers and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? So these guys, they really want to give Jesus enough proverbial rope to hang himself. So they ask him, you know, in, in test language, hey, get out your blue book. We're going to give you an open-ended question here. Essay question. Um, where do you think your authority comes from? And they ask him this pretty self-assuredly because they don't think he can answer because authority came from at least uh, three significant places. One was your birthright. Priests were born into the priesthood and they had authority because of who they were how they were born. Um, education. Scribes had gone through rigorous training, so they had that authority from their education. And then lineage. There's the principal men of the city or the elders, that they were the big families in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus had a questionable birthright in the eyes of many. We don't know of his formal training. And he, his family, we don't know how highly they were regarded in Nazareth. They certainly weren't high regarded, hardly regarded in Jerusalem. So they're pretty confident that in terms of authority, Jesus doesn't have any good answers. So take all the time you want, take all the room you want, um, but he's not going to have anything good to say. So let's look at how Jesus responds. He replied, Jesus, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? So Jesus just kind of ignores their essay question. He gives them a scantron and says, I've got a true-false for you. <laughs> who's, who's, who's John about? What is he about? Let's see how they, how they respond. They discussed it among themselves. Apparently it was a group test. And said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, often when I read that, I thought, Jesus is kind of just being petty, kind of being childish here. I, and I was wrong as I studied more. Um, but this is a rabbinical jousting of sorts that Jesus is going on here with. He gave him a true and false, and he just really exposed their hypocrisy. They tried to shame him, and he's not being childish. He, he just answered the fools according to their folly. He showed that they are not at all interested in the truth. They're interested in holding on to their authority. They're interested in just covering their own backsides and keeping the status quo just the way they like it. And so these guys are shameless. They're going to keep trying in the next chapter or two of Luke, but Jesus puts them down for now. See, they think they have authority, but it's clear from the interaction that they just had and also the fact that Jesus feels no need to cite his authority that he's the one who's in charge. So the question now is how does this translate to us? 
gospel authority is the key issue here. And so my question is to ask yourself, who or what has authority in my life? Who or what has authority in my life? See, Jesus throws down the gauntlet in the temple, but apparently it wasn't clear enough. The opponents weren't going to give up that easily. And either are yours. Whether they be your spiritual opponent, whether they be actual physical people who are against you standing up for your faith, whether it be the culture, they aren't going to go down without a fight. How many of you have, have, you have done that? You've thrown down the gauntlet and said, that's it, I'm following Jesus, and that settles it. The line is in the sand. There's no going back. I'm going to be totally different now. And then not much, not much later, reality hit, and you fell into the same stuff. Maybe it's that your friends and your family, they aren't as enthusiastic about your newfound faith as you are. In fact, they hate it, and it may not even be newfound, and they've hated it for a long time. Just like the high priest, they claim birthright on you. And it could be your friends for a long time as well, but they say, no, you belong to us, and so you have this struggle of authority in your life of who do I listen to, my friends and my family, or do I listen to Jesus? Or maybe it's influential people. could be those same friends to educators, celebrities, politicians, all different kinds of people will begin to shape us. They always do. Um, That's their role in society. Even if they don't claim authority, they are shaping how we think and how we live. And we let people sometimes who are absolutely irresponsible and some people who are dead set against God and his ways have influence in our lives because we grant them authority to guide us and direct us in how we live. There are voices that say pursue power, money, sex, all the usual suspects above all else. The voices that tell you to look out for yourself because nobody else will, especially Jesus. That's why we constantly need to ask, who's in charge of my life? ask ourselves about the great commandment, the great commission, how those are revealed in our lives. And so we need to diagnose it, but also we need to fight it. And how do you fight it? One of the great formative verses in Scripture is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And the idea is that the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. The world wants us to be like the rest of them. And yet it says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's the idea that we are active participants in this. Not that we earn our salvation, but that God wants us to engage in the process of renewing our minds and being committed to putting him in that place of authority. Um, I mean, if you've ever thought you're going to cruise in the Christian life, you've been sold a bill of goods. I don't know what being sold a bill of goods means, but I know it's not good. Okay, and so that's a, that's, the idea is that we need to fight for transformation. We need to fight to keep Jesus on the throne of our lives, to keep him in the place of authority, and that means conflict. That's what we're talking about this morning, particularly with, with the world and the culture, um, that there are things that will be against what we're, we're about. And also our own flesh, our own sinful flesh has patterns of sinfulness that are just built in that we need to rewire So we'll fight against our flesh and against our adversary, the devil, as well. So how do we do that? How do we fight it? It means getting into God's word and and reading it and understanding the story and then also meditating on it and, and memorizing and letting God's word begin to be programmed into how we think and how we live. It means prayer. It means fasting. It means undergoing those transformational exercises that help us to become more like Jesus so that when those voices speak to us of saying this is a good thing, we'll know if it's Jesus saying this is a good thing or if it's those things that are against Jesus that are trying to to lead us away from him. God loves you. He is 
well pleased with you and he wants to transform you, but we need to engage in the renewing process to be changed more and more like Jesus so we can resist those voices in our culture that try to claim authority that they don't have because Jesus is the one who has authority. And so we're going to have to fight those voices by being transformed with the renewing of our minds. So the question then, just to summarize this section, is who's your authority? Is it your peers? Your, the culture? Maybe it's yourself. You think you're in charge. Obviously, we, we, we are here, most of us, we think Jesus is the right answer. But he, I guess he's always there, but we, we let others take his place. If we're not careful, if we're not diligent, if we're not committed to keeping him central as that central authority in our lives. So conflict's all over the place here. Throwing tables around in the temple that's lost its purpose. And, and the conflict we need to undergo is self-examination on our purpose. Arguing in the temple courts over who's in charge causes us to reflect about who's in charge in our lives. And now Jesus is going to tell a story about conflict. And it's his turn to hit back one more time. Round three is the cryptic conflict. I call it that because Jesus tells a parable. But everyone gets it, so I'm not sure how cryptic it is. But um, chapter 20, verses 9 to the first part of 16. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. When the tenants saw him, they talked over the matter. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this immediately evokes images of God's special relationship with Israel. In Isaiah, Israel is the vine and God tends to the vine. This parable would would bring those images to mind, but it's different. See, here Israel, at least at this point, their leadership are the tenants. And God is the owner of the vineyard. And Israel has rejected prophet after prophet, and you see that in Acts chapter 7 as well in Stephen's speech. And in a few short days, they're going to reject the son. And what's crazy here is that they think that they'll inherit God's blessings while they're fighting against God's purposes and what God is doing. Now, we've got to be real careful here. It, is, it isn't that God's done with Israel altogether, but what we're seeing here is a transferring of, a, of the place of blessing and responsibility in what God's doing in the world. See, there's a blessing and a responsibility that comes with being chosen by God. And, and Israel was losing that distinction. They weren't being the light to the nations that they were supposed to. And so Jesus is going to use the disciples and then the church to help fulfill what God has called his people to do. And we see that um, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is volume 2 of Luke's work in, um, in the Bible. Go ahead and throw that up there. You, uh, Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the idea is that we will worship God and we will reveal God to the ends of the earth, which is the idea was that the nations, the ends of the earth, would stream to the temple. 
And so those hearing this, they aren't happy about it. Look at the second part of verse 16. says, when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. But leaders and followers alike will fall in line to crucify Jesus on Good Friday. And we need to be careful here because passages like this, if not this particular passage, have been used to justify anti-Semitism throughout the ages. And that is absolutely not what this is about. God still has a heart for Israel and God has a future for Israel. But at this point, the issue is how will you, and he was in Jerusalem in the temple, so he was speaking in a Jewish context, but how will you respond to the fact that the Son has come to, to have a relationship with his people and to enjoy the fruitfulness of the vineyard with them? And the stakes of how people respond to that are pretty intense, pretty sobering. If we continue in the text, verse 17, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The sun has turned into the stone, and how you respond to him determines how you will be judged or embraced. There's a rabbinic saying um, that I found studying this week that says, if a stone falls on a pot, so much for the pot. If a pot falls on a stone... So much for the pot. And the idea here is that, that if you do not respond, um, you, can, you can choose to be broken to pieces or crushed. Either way, it's not good. And that we need to embrace, um, not reject the stone, which is Jesus. The proper response is to embrace the Son. So the implications, they're clear and they're serious. Um, and so the question is, what will the leaders do? I mean, could this conflict, could this story touch their hearts to such a degree that they say, okay, we get it now and we're with you. Let's look at what they do, verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So they've sealed their eventual fate and they set into motion the events of Easter week. This passage that we're looking at today is kind of the conflict that starts the rest of the conflict during that week. <coughs> Excuse me. So our question, one more question for you to ask yourself, and it kind of brings us full circle. We're talking a lot about conflict, and so a lot of this is looking into ourselves and seeing what's going on in there. But the question here is clear is, am I willing, will I embrace the blessing of responsibility? Will I embrace the blessing of responsibility? Let me explain that a little better. Um, See, as time ticks off, when we get closer to the crucifixion and resurrection, things get very focused, and it's really, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do about him? And how you determine that question, how you answer that question, determines your blessing or the lack thereof. Just reviewing where we've been, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem that soon will be judged. He throws a wrench in the temple system because it's lost its purpose. He argues about who has authority with the religious leaders. And now there's a parable where the final exam is, who are you going to throw yourself in with? Are you coming with me or are you going with the religious leaders? At this point, it's time to pick sides. And picking sides means conflict with someone. Could be yourself again. Could be those who don't want you to follow Jesus Either way, the conflict must be engaged in passionately, but also we need to do it with grace. So now we push through um, to that, that blessing that we were talking about at the beginning. Remember the central thought here this morning was when we embrace Jesus through conflict, we will experience God's blessing and great responsibility. 
And that was what is moving away from Israel to the disciples at this point. And so the, t- the parable tells us that the way to blessing is to embrace the son, not to reject the son. Not to kill him or the previous servants for that matter. And so the parable is looking for son-embracing tenants for the vineyard that would enjoy the blessings of the vineyard, would enjoy sharing the blessings of the vineyard with the one who gave those blessings to begin with, the owner of the vineyard, who is God. And, and just by way of judgment, because we don't like to talk about judgment, but the fact that over and over, God sends servant and servant and servant, and then finally, his son just speaks to the long-suffering of God, his desire for people to repent, and his, the fact that he is not eager to judge, but it is something that must eventually happen. So, we talk about this blessing and responsibility. Let's start with the blessing, that blessing begins with relationship. See, with all this talk of stones that are going to crush and, and, and turn things to bits, we forget that there's been a transition made. That this is the son who wants to share bless, the blessing of fruitfulness with the tenants. He wants relationship. We, we, we didn't read the text, but if you read right before where we started today, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. You don't weep for a people unless you love them deeply. And he does. He wants their best. And his love is deep, but also embracing that and having that relationship with him, it isn't automatic. We need to embrace this relationship of blessing. And one of the ways we do that, a simple way that we we remember it here is through ABC. A is admit that you're a sinner. And a sinner doesn't mean you're the worst person in the world, but what it means is you've been a tenant like, like they were in that parable where you think that this world is something I've created, that all this fruit is the work I've done, and you don't recognize that everything is a gift from God. And so in some ways, we, we have displaced God in that. And so that's sin, is thinking that and many other things, but thinking that we're in charge, that we are autonomous. And so what we need to do, because that invites judgment, we need to believe that Jesus took that judgment on himself at the cross in our place. And so we believe that, that he died, that he rose again so that we could be reconciled with God, and then we commit to following him. And we say, it's not just a punching a ticket to heaven, it is walking into a relationship and having a life with Christ. And committing may mean conflict, but it's a non-negotiable to embrace the Son if you want to enjoy the blessings of those relationships. He wants that friendship with you if you'll have him, but it will cost you. You're giving your life to him. You're giving yourself to him completely. See, but there's also more to this relationship than just blessing. Blessing begins with relationship, but there's more because blessing entails responsibility. We get this confused notion about being elected or chosen that it's a focus on how special or wonderful we are. Ask a friend, you're not that special or that wonderful, right? The idea, if they're honest with you, uh, but the idea is that... uh, is that when we're chosen, we're chosen absolutely to enjoy God's blessing, to enjoy God's goodness, but we're also given a responsibility to share that with others. That, that it's, it's not a, a, a who's in, who's out. It's, it, it, to an extent, it's if you're in, you're in, and you're enjoying that, but you are in so that you go to those who are out. That we are called into God's vineyard, and we're called in to receive his blessings, but not to be hoarders of fruit, but so that we would go out and we would share those blessings and share his goodness with others. It's a call to responsibility, not just to blessing. So, the question is, how do we do that? And there are a million ways of kindness and serving others and just loving people. Um, and, and we encourage you to do all that. One of the ways we want to specifically encourage you to do that right now 
is that um, Easter's coming, and people are wondering, hey, maybe I should go somewhere for Easter. And what we want to do is we want to get the word out. We want our neighbors here and our neighbors on your street to know that God is seeking them to be part of his family. And so uh, the pardons out at the information center have a table, and we, we want people prayer walking in our community, specifically right here around the church and also where you are. And so we want you to go there, and we want you to sign up and take a street and sometime in the next week, walk that street and just pray. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't have to freak people out, have them walking on the far side of the road or anything. Just, just pray under your breath or silently as you're walking um, that God would move the hearts in that community to draw them here um, on Easter morning. And then the following week, uh, next week, we, we'll have door hangers, and you can go by and hang those so that people, when they're thinking, maybe I should go somewhere for Easter, and they look on their door, and they get that, oh, Cypress Church is right down the street. Let's try that out. So that's what we want to do, because we want to be committed to loving our neighbors. We want to be committed to not just enjoy God's blessings and have a great time on Easter morning, but to share those blessings with others, to embrace the responsibility as well as the blessings. You have likely Many of you, if you've, if you've received Christ, all of you who have received Christ have, are enjoying the blessings of God, are enjoying the blessings of relationship with God. But it's also our responsibility to share those blessings. And so that's my question is, will you embrace the blessings of responsibility that God's given you? Conflict's great in the movies. Um, it's a lot more difficult in life. And a lot of us want to avoid it. We're like water. We'll go the path of least resistance and not just in terms of confrontation with other people, but even in terms of looking into ourselves and thinking, oh, I might have to get up earlier to pray, or I might have to do this to grow in my spiritual walk. But we can't embrace the life that God wants us to live if we don't engage in some, at least, internal conflict. And if we're following Jesus, we're heading into conflict in some way, shape, or form. Um, So, Ultimately, we're going to have to choose where we're going to side. Are we going to hang on to our own authority? Are we going to keep doing things the way we want to do them? Or are we going to submit to Jesus' authority and and deal with some of the the challenges that come with that? So wherever we are in this decision-making process in, in terms of living out our faith, conflict is inevitable. But in the midst of conflict, what we see here is that we need to reach for Jesus. We need to hold on to him as he's seeking to change us. And he will guide us through those conflicts and he'll take us home as we seek to walk with him. And as we do that, it may be challenging and filled with conflict now, but it's the only way we're going to enjoy the fullness of his blessing and the fullness of his rest. So Mike, would you come lead us in prayer?